Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode in our podcast series, Beyond Markets. My name is Nam Park, Head of Strategy and Business Operations Singapore at Julius Baer. Today, I'm here with Justin Chow, the CEO and Executive Director of Hidden Road Singapore and Global Head of Digital Assets. Justin is an experienced trader and hedge fund manager and spent years working in both distressed debt and global micro trading. He managed foreign exchange and interest rate portfolios at DRW Trading and Citadel. In recent years, he has also focused more on digital assets. Hi, Justin. Thank you for joining us today for this episode on digital assets, the latest crypto and DeFi talk. Thanks, Nam. Thanks for having me. Crypto markets have been under immense pressure as of late. BTC is trading sub-23,000 and ETH sub-1,200, both down massively from their all-time highs in November last year of 69,000 and 4,800 respectively. Could you summarize what is going on in the market currently and what are some of the key driving factors that are contributing to the sell-off? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I'd say overall, which is pretty typical of, of any market decline, uh, it's often driven by an unwinding of leverage in the system. And in cryptocurrencies and digital assets, no different than in many senses what we've seen in traditional markets in the past that can be highly levered. So it's a combination. It's quite complex, but uh, we've had some specific market events that were quite negative with Terra and Luna, unfortunately, the protocol collapsing. We've had uh, a deleveraging in the DeFi sector where a lot of the market participants that had pledged their assets are withdrawing them now. And then, of course, it's not helpful that the overall macro backdrop with rising interest rates is not supportive of new liquidity coming into the market. So I think all three of these factors coming in really do play a role. The one that I'm a little bit more surprised, but I guess it's kind of good in the long term, is that the overall macro backdrop Uh, has actually directly affected the crypto market. And we can talk about that a little bit more, but that's something that, you know, four or five years ago when I started in the industry, we did not see whatsoever. There was very little correlation to equities, let's say, or high growth tech stocks and digital currencies. Whereas today, if you see, you know, with last week's CPI print, when the S&P futures dropped after the print, you immediately saw cryptocurrencies starting to sell off. That type of behavior is quite different I will say really quickly, though, that in many senses, folks talk about crypto being a hedge against inflation and other traditional assets and certainly not behaving that way right now. I do have some thoughts around that that we can touch upon later. But I think the fact that it's starting to at least respond to what's going on in traditional markets is, even though it's not, if it's not responding in the way or in the correlation that market participants would hope for, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because it means that traditional market participants are looking at digital as another asset in the spectrum of where they can invest their capital or speculate with their capital. And as a result of that, you know, at least crypto is starting to respond to what's happening into in the real world, let's say, right? There has been much talk about the decoupling of Bitcoin from traditional markets. In current times of market stress, Bitcoin and crypto have sold off together with equities. Why haven't we seen Bitcoin fulfill its purpose as a 
for example, store of value? And how do you see this thesis playing out? I knew that question was coming. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a great question. I would love to call up whoever created Bitcoin and ask them that directly. But you're right. I mean, the thing is that Bitcoin is supposed to be a digital store of value, a digital version of gold. It is supposed to be an inflation hedge due to the limited supply. The technology itself is not super efficient. It was meant for payments, but it doesn't perform in that way. It's just too slow. It's too expensive. So it's kind of found its purpose. You know, people have conducted enough analysis to say that it should behave this way. And you're right. It's not behaving that way right now. The reason I think that it's not behaving that way is you had a tremendous amount of frenzy and interest in digital assets between 2020 and 2021 primarily when the Biden administration uh, injected additional liquidity into uh, the U.S. monetary system. And so as a result of that, you had a flood of capital chasing these assets. And it's not just digital. It's luxury watches. It's real estate. It's even branded goods. Luxury branded goods that are rare have just been skyrocketing over the last few years. So it's kind of a global phenomenon where a huge wave of liquidity went into these assets and they went into Bitcoin. Right. And the same investors, the same people that received this liquidity invested that and then and invested that money in digital currencies also invested it in high growth tech stocks. And you saw, I think Tesla went up like, I don't know, something like 10 or 20x in, in 2021 or something. So bottom line is a market will only behave the way its underlying participants choose to behave. The price of an asset will always move in line with the participants in that market. So let's, let's take the Singapore real estate market, for example. It's pretty idiosyncratic. You have these 2,000 GCBs here, and they behave very differently in price to real estate in other major cities, for example. It's just, it's nuanced. Or freehold properties here versus leasehold properties. There's a gap, there's a, there's a spread between value of those properties. Uh, but only in the buyer's market, not in the rental market. So these kind of idiosyncrasies exist in any marketplace and I think because of the fact that the same investors in high growth tech or the same investors in crypto, because of the wealth effects driven by the rate hikes, because of the stock market, for example, coming down and affecting people's purchasing power, they look at their overall portfolio. They say, all right, my overall portfolio, what can I sell or liquidate to meet a margin call in equities? I can sell some Bitcoin. What do I need? to sell to meet my mortgage payments because unfortunately I lost my job. Let me sell some Bitcoin. So it comes down to portfolio construction is the way I see it. And because these are fairly liquid assets and because it's new assets, they are new assets that were recently added to individuals' portfolios, they're on that radar for turnover. Whereas if somebody bought a, a house, for example, or even a luxury watch, it's not the first thing they think about flipping when they have a margin call or they need to meet some a capital call or they need some more liquidity somewhere else. So bottom line is, I think because, again, same investors and because liquid assets, it's going to be moving in line today. What I'm expecting is that as the number of retail market participants declines, and some of these digital asset exchanges, by the way, have close to 100 million retail users, right? So these, these are very, very large retail markets. Put that into context, if I'm not mistaken, TD Ameritrade has something between 10 and 15 million active users. And so as a result of that, you need more institutional capital to come in and essentially offset the retail capital. The market is too retail heavy at this moment. And so it's subject to the behavior of what the retail market participants want to do. Over time, as that rebalances and you get more institutional capital coming in, retail declining as an overall percentage, 
then it'll start behaving according to the thesis of what the institutional investors expect, which is that, you know, one of the reasons they may be investing is, as we mentioned earlier, as an inflation hedge. So that sort of inflection point, I think, I think is coming in the next few years. Very interesting. Market sentiment and expectations. Let's move on to that. We're also seeing large institutions announce hiring freezes and declaring crypto winters here. Do you think we are entering a multi-year crypto winter or bear market? If so, what do you think are some of the key narratives, catalysts that could revive the market? That is an extremely complex question to answer. It's twofold. I guess the answer, the way I see it is it's going to be driven by what the crypto market participants want to do, what the technological innovation is in crypto today and, and how that's going to evolve. And then the third piece that's a bit of an externality is what is happening in the overall macro backdrop. And, and that's the one, I, strangely enough, I think is the easiest to address. So let me start there. We are in a relatively high inflation environment and a rising interest rate environment. That is something that almost nobody from our current generation has truly seen. And what I mean by that is even the, you know, the FX trader at a bank that's been there 20 years you know, started his career in 2000, 2022, let's say, hasn't really seen this type of environment. The old guard have retired and moved on. There were individuals that participated in, you know, 2008, the global financial crisis, but that is different than a high inflation rising rate environment. So in that environment, and this is, I'm not going to talk a lot about this because it's very well documented with much smarter people like, you know, Ray Dalio, for example, but in a rising rate environment, essentially, you are draining liquidity from the system. And so that makes it difficult for any asset to appreciate because people are paring back their, their risk. The people are, are taking risk off the table. So I like to think of that as like the tailwind. Now it becomes a headwind. The path of least resistance now is that there's friction for assets to perform. And that's essentially what the environment that we are operating in. Now, the difficult thing is that usually, when you have a pivot from a, a declining rate environment, which is what we've seen over 30 years, to a rising environment, it could persist for some time. And if it persists for some time, that's going to put extended pressure and it's going to wear on the investors in the market, in any market. And over time, they become more and more worn out because they're not making money, they're not performing in their portfolios. And then that in turn causes a, a reflex action into their spending, into the economy, and you get this sort of spiral. So if that is truly the case, and, and it's questionable, I don't think anybody knows the answer whether or not inflation is going to stay in high single digits, or it's going to come down, or it's going to go up further. The bottom line is, if this persists, it will be difficult for all asset classes in the world, and not just digital currencies. And that's essentially why we've seen both the bond market and the stock market or the, or the risk parity trade start to unwind over the last like six to nine months as both these assets have come down. So I, I think we need to first make a call on, okay, what do you think is going to happen in the overall backdrop? Is it time to be conservative with investing? Is it time to be allocating capital? And then go from there. Now, what I will say, though, is narrowing into digital assets, there definitely is a tremendous amount of innovation being done. Some of it is replicating what exists in the outside the digital asset world. For example, like sharding in cryptocurrencies, that is not novel. That's something that computer scientists have been working with and using as a technology for, I don't know how long, 20, 30 years. 
But there are innovations. Web3 is, is becoming huge. The fact that people can now monetize their digital content is a theme that I believe is here to stay. We have for too long, well, I'm not a user of social media, so not we, but individuals in general have for too long given away their content free for access to a platform. And that's something, again, very well documented with social media and stuff like that. So uh, in the digital currency space, what I've seen in the last four years is a tremendous amount of talent moving over from tier one tech companies, software engineers, brilliant minds from companies like Google or Facebook, you know, et cetera, moving into digital because they see the potential to build stuff. That did not exist four or five years ago. Four or five years ago, it was kind of the fringe software engineer that was just sort of poking his head around that was dabbling in digital. Now you have very, very talented individuals. You also have capital. Uh, a lot of venture capitalists like A16Z over in, in Silicon Valley have raised tremendous amounts of money to invest. Peter Thiel himself as well uh, has invested a lot in the digital asset space. And so when you have talent and you have the capital to give them time to build, that's sort of like the ingredients in a Petri dish to allow germination. But again, that germination still takes time. It still takes time for a brilliant mind to invent something, right? You, you still needed the internet to be at a certain phase before Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook. So I believe we are in this phase right now. It's very similar to the early days of the internet where you have individuals starting to really brainstorm using these technologies and to try to invent the Facebook or the Google or the Amazon of the blockchain and digital asset space. I don't think it's been invented yet. Uh, in fact, I don't even think anybody has come up with the idea that's going to be the next mega crypto or blockchain company that everybody may be using in 10, 20 years from now. I don't even think someone's in, in thought of the idea yet. But the talent is there. The capital to back them is there. And with Web3 being a giant theme, I do think that over the long term, that's an area, that's an industry, that's a sector that I want to be investing in. Put it that way. Now, the other part as well is what are the current market participants thinking and, and how are they feeling? And this sort of rounds out that question. Again, there's the overall macro backdrop, there's the fundamental technologies that are being developed, and then there's the people today and how are they feeling? The market participants are in a tremendous amount of pain. That cannot be denied. Do you feel it? Retail are hurting, my friends are hurting, institutional investors are hurting, people feel burnt. But again, it goes back to what I said in the beginning. When you have excessive leverage, when things go up too quickly, they come down pretty quickly too. And so I don't know if we're going to be in a prolonged bear market for you know, one, two, or five years, but I, I would not be surprised if it will take multiple years to recover from this. And that recovery will be driven by a combination of the institutional investor deciding that, okay, it's now not a frenzy. The market's not in a position now where if I were to invest as a fiduciary for my investors, I could get burned, which essentially was what happened recently. The institutional investor said, okay, it's a reasonable valuation. I am playing for the next 10 years. And if I'm getting in now and I, you know, let's say, for example, allocate slowly over time, I feel like over 10 years, 20 years, this will be a performing investment as opposed to I deploy capital and I get burnt tomorrow because I chase the bubble. You know, institutional investors never want to get caught chasing a bubble. The second thing is with the technological advancement and the development that people are focusing on, especially on Web3, that I believe will be a big catalyst for the institutional investors to say, I want to support that. It's sort of like, okay, you had early venture capitalists investing in internet companies in the 90s, early 2000s. But at some point, endowments started allocating to these companies too. 
that's sort of that, again, that pivot moment that we are looking for. And I think you kind of start needing more institutional long-term investors investing in the space, replacing the retail for us to finally come out of that bear market. And again, that may take years. Now, another one of the hot topics of late is on decentralized finance, also known as DeFi. The Terra collapse has exposed several things about DeFi, amongst others, unsustainable yields, frictions between crypto and real-world utility. A big lure for UST and many other DeFi protocols are the high yields. However, the high yields have not come without high risk, as seen with Terra's collapse. As the saying goes in crypto Twitter, if you don't know where the yields are coming from, you are the yield. DeFi was intended to provide a censorship-resistant avenue for retail users who were once excluded to access financial services, but it's starting to look like a game of musical chairs. What do you see organic yields and utility for DeFi, if any? Yeah, we know where you're spending your evenings now I'm, uh, on crypto Twitter now. <laughs> okay, so DeFi is an interesting concept, but I think the first rollout, or I guess the iteration one, and it kind of had a second iteration as well, recently were just not designed well. And so what I mean by that is that the concept of being able to get yields or rewards or essentially the equivalent of a dividend payout through decentralized finance is brilliant. It's novel. It gives potentially every person on the planet that has connectivity to the internet and connectivity to, let's call it a smartphone where they can have a wallet, access to generating yields. Now there's two kinds, right? There, there are the platforms I won't name any specific protocols or platforms here just for purposes, but there are some platforms that generate revenues and fees from the users that use the platform. And then they pay that fee back to the people that are staking those tokens. So I buy the NOM token. The NOM platform is generating revenues from users using the platform. And then I decide to stake my NOM tokens, you know, DeFi style, in the protocol. And as a result of that, the fees get distributed down to the stakers. That's pretty novel. That's very similar to my buying a stock and receiving a dividend. Now, and I think that is sort of whoever came up with that, that is sort of the grassroots of where this DeFi movement can go. Now, the problem with the vast majority of DeFi is that they don't operate that way. They operate, and I hate using this term, but a little bit like Ponzi schemes. And so it comes down to reading the white papers. It comes down to understanding how they are driving value to the token holders before you can make a determination whether or not this is sustainable. Now, the problem is, without a professional sitting there and combing through this stuff, the retail market participants get ruled too much by emotion, by hype. So they end up moving and they end up chasing all these specific protocols to get quote-unquote yield without understanding where that yield is coming from, and you are absolutely correct. And oftentimes, that yield comes from the foundation just creating more tokens and handing them to you right? The equivalent of a rights offering, I guess you could say in some sense. And they just give you that token. And then you're supposed to just sell that token in the market to the greater fool to monetize that yield. Now that is clearly not sustainable. And essentially that is what caused this DeFi collapse today. The emergence of too many of these random DeFi protocols that promised yield. And essentially that's what caused the, the Luna and Terra collapse in many ways as well. I mean, there were, there were other flaws in the white paper if, if you read it. Essentially, it behaved, it's what they call an algorithmic stablecoin, and it behaved exactly as it was supposed to. So it kind of shocks me when folks are like, I cannot believe that the Terra stablecoin went to zero. Well, it, it was kind of designed to do that, right? So that just, it was a flaw. So the way I see it is 
these are like pioneering concepts and pioneering technologies. And because they are not regulated, because anybody it's open source and anybody can create it, you're going to get a lot of different like recipes, you know, being put together and most of them are not going to be good. Sort of like the R&D division in my kitchen at home. When I try to make new food, usually it's no good, right? If I were to bring a Michelin star chef into my house to try to make something new, he probably would do a phenomenal job. So I think what's happening now, similarly to, to other areas of digital, is that there are people taking these pioneering concepts and they're trying to develop stuff that's going to be sustainable in the future. But you have a bunch of individuals that may not understand how to design this stuff properly, but there's an allure because of marketing, because of distribution via social media, because of high yields. That's where the investors have exposed themselves. Unfortunately, that has caused people a tremendous amount of pain and wealth destruction. But again, it doesn't mean the overall technology or concept should be completely thrown out, you know, the baby with the bathwater. And an example I'll give of that again is like, let's go back to the internet. Like there was once upon a time where people thought, you know, the Amazon business model was not that great, you know, and if I'm not mistaken, it traded down in the low teens post the internet crash. And now, well, the rest is history. It kind of feels like we may be at that moment in digital and then also with DeFi where the industry is trying to find its identity. The brilliance out there are trying to prove that they can invent something better than the average guy who's saying he wants to build or invent something in DeFi or in digital. And somebody, I think, will come up with something novel. So my general opinion is that DeFi is a great concept. It serves a purpose to be able to give yields and returns to those that are unbanked. And I believe there will be more people in the world with an internet connection and a smartphone than even a bank account. It probably already is in countries like Indonesia. But there is one major problem. And and the one major problem I will highlight here that I don't know how it's going to play out is DeFi conceptually does not want to be regulated. It is decentralized. And whenever you have capital and movements of money moving around that equate greater than a certain sum, I think it's like $4,000 in Singapore, you need to be regulated. You need to be protected. Sorry, the consumer needs to be protected from bad actors by the regulator. I don't know how that's going to play out over time. That is a fundamental clash of heads between how regulators in the monetary system are designed and what the digital currency and DeFi industry, if you want to call it that, is trying to create and disrupt. So I don't have an answer on how that's going to unfold, but I think that's something that we need to pay close attention on because that's, that's something that structurally, it kind of goes against each other. ETH2O. A lot has been made about Ethereum's upcoming merge of two proof of stake with sharding to follow thereafter. Sharding, as in splitting a blockchain into multiple pieces or shards and storing them in different places in order to reduce computational burden on each so that the network can process a larger volume of transactions. Here we are talking about improving Ether's scalability and capacity. What magnitude of an impact do you think this upgrade has on crypto? Is it enough to inspire mainstream adoption? Yeah, so the, um, the ETH merge and ETH 2.0, I think, conceptually has been around for some time, so it's not something that the industry was, well, it was something the industry was looking forward to, but you know, it didn't really have a significant impact on people's behavior in terms of, you know, it wasn't like a huge event or catalyst. It was, it was in many ways disappointing. The market reacted and sort of buy the rumor, sell the news. Concepts like sharding, again, are not necessarily novel in the world of computer science. 
But I think for digital currencies, that concept does allow protocols to essentially fulfill their goal of being faster and being able to facilitate more transactions per second while not sacrificing uh, security. And so I don't have a tremendous amount to comment on this, but what I do think is that anytime you have a sort of an evolution or an upgrade or development in the technology and the underlying technology being here being how a layer one protocol like Ethereum is able to scale, it does allow for more use cases. So fundamentally, like it's really difficult to say how the market or how the industry is going to evolve over time. But what I think of this is sort of like the difference between Windows 3.1 and Windows 95. It's like, it's a big enough of an upgrade that it changes the way people interact with the ecosystem and it allows for new inventions from that, right? In Windows 3.1, your features were very limited. In Windows 95, you move to a completely different layout and you can move these little windows around. And then from there, you had the development of the operating system. I see it as the same thing for protocols. As they get upgrades, it allows the base layer for programmers to develop new decentralized applications to expand. It basically gives them the ability to build new things. And so if, for example, in this kind of situation, if you upgrade something and you make it faster with more security, it now allows you to compete with other protocols that were invented where individuals say, okay, well, I invented this protocol because Ethereum lacked this. A good example would be Polkadot or Solana. So what it does is it basically just opens up the landscape for new types of technologies and new types of applications to be written on there that previously were not able to be done. Another example would be when Bitcoin was originally launched, nobody's running decentralized applications on Bitcoin. It takes 10 minutes for the thing to, to settle. I can't even buy coffee at Starbucks with Bitcoin because I'd have to wait there for 10 minutes for them to make sure that the transaction was approved. So when Ethereum came out, it absolutely was novel. And these subsequent upgrades just allow, again, the scope to, to expand. So I don't look into it in great detail, like on a micro level. I see it on a macro level that like, this is the development, this is the, the growth of the industry in terms of how the technologies are evolving to allow a greater scope of brilliant minds to come in and build new things. Thanks, Justin. Some final questions, Justin. We have seen Bitcoin trade with high correlation to equity markets and not fulfill its thesis as an inflation hedge or store of value. We have seen DeFi implosion with the largest decentralized stablecoin going to zero. We have also most recently saw Celsius, a CFI platform, an on-ramp for non-crypto native, face severe liquidity issues to the extent of suspending withdrawals. The recent crypto events have not been constructive to building mainstream adoption. In your opinion, what do you think will be the one innovation or use case of public blockchains Web 3.0 that will see the largest adoption? Yeah, we've talked about so many different potential use cases, even though I, I commented that I do think that DeFi earnings coming from revenue streams of, a, of an underlying platform makes a lot of sense. The, the one thing I feel very strongly about, which is kind of ironic because I, I don't participate in social media, is this sort of concept of owning your own digital content and being able to profit from it, right? That, that Web3 concept. And, and I'll be more specific here. I think NFTs as a concept are brilliant. The actual NFT space as we see it today, which is basically digital artwork being sold for tons of money, I don't know if I believe in that. That just sort of feels like hype, like kind of tulip mania. However, I see it such that like, if, for example, you know, I am a world-class photographer, 
right? And people love my content and I've got 500,000 followers on Instagram. I, I think that's a large number, I'm not sure. I make very little money or Instagram decides to pay me based upon the fact that I've got followers or what I do is that I say, hey, because I've got followers, I've got viewership, you can hire me and I will take some photos in your restaurant or at your hotel and you pay me for that and, but I still have to, to do the work, et cetera. I see it as a different situation where in the future, these photos, for example, may be NFTs and for someone to access it, they actually have to pay. They have to pay in a stable coin or they have to pay an underlying token of the platform. So let's use an example. Maybe there's a decentralized Instagram, a, a Dinstagram, right? In that situation, that platform may have its own token. And if I want to view and entertain myself looking at the individual's content, I need to pay that individual through smart contract with that token. That I don't think is improbable. I think that we could see that future in the world going forward. Another example would be decentralized Netflix. Right now, you pay $21 a month to access Netflix, whether you watch or not. Unlimited amount of content. Whether you entertain yourself and watch eight hours of TV, or if you're like me, you don't watch at all. I don't even know why I pay for it. You're still paying. I see a world, and then of course, the platform Netflix has rights to the shows and then they pay accordingly, but they take a cut in the middle. Why should there be something, somebody or some centralized organization taking a cut in the middle? right? People should be able to create their own content, maybe not full movies, but maybe short videos, maybe even the equivalent of like these, this TikTok mania. And you can go on the platform and you can view anything you want there, just like YouTube. And you, in order to view it, you pay with a de minimis amount of tokens. It could be a penny. It could be one penny worth of tokens to go and view that. And then of course, through smart contract, that payment gets routed to whoever created the content. That is super powerful. And I think we're going to start seeing a shift. Uh, and I have one more example of people that are working jobs in the real world, whether you're an accountant, or you're a banker, you're a lumberjack, moving away from these sort of real world careers into creating digital content and getting paid from that. I'll give you the last example, which I think is pretty close to happening as well. Video gamers. I mean, I don't play games, but there's a gazillion people in the world that play games. In fact, I even watched people play StarCraft on YouTube before. And that's a 20-year-old game because it's entertaining. Now, those guys, they got to get recruited. They have to get sponsored. And then as they basically perform or play, they get paid from the company that is broadcasting it. It is not improbable that people can play games for a living. And, and you can get paid in two ways. One is that either it's broadcasted. And again, people that watch as an eSport they have to pay in the underlying token of the decentralized platform, which gets routed to you through smart contract as a payment. Or the game that you are playing, if it's not a, if it's like a long-term game, the artifacts that you acquire in the game, right, can be sold as NFTs. And that is what we're seeing right now. I'm a personal investor in a bunch of games where, that are being created right now, where as you play the game and collect weapons or scrolls or potions, they can be sold as NFTs in the internal marketplace. So now the game issues these items, these artifacts, and the players of the, in the universe in that game can actually monetize them in the real world. So, and, and we've seen sort of a demo of that with Axie Infinity. It's a first beta of what play to earn could look like. But I think these concepts, all these examples falling into the whole category of Web3 and NFTs and potentially metaverses, like, like video game is a, basically a, a small metaverse. I think we need to pay very close attention to that. That's an incredibly interesting concept it's something we've not seen thus far. 
It's people taking ownership of their own content and getting paid directly for that without having to have multiple middlemen. So I think that's the area that, that's really, really exciting for, let's call it the next five or 10 years. Very interesting, including Instagram and many of these new external projects. I should go and like trademark that name, Instagram. <laughs> I like that. Lastly, one for the road, Justin. What would you say to a no-coiner to convince them to huddle crypto? Yeah, I, I just say do some research. You know, whenever, again, the highest level, when you have talent and you have capital, those are the ingredients. That's sort of like yeast and flour and water, right? There's stuff going on. Do the research, take a look, be open-minded. You don't have to jump into the first thing, but be open-minded and then just try to envision what the future could look like. And then from there, you can make your investment decisions. Thank you very much, Justin for sharing your valuable insights with us. Dear listeners, that's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. On behalf of all of us at Julius Bear, thank you for tuning in and goodbye. Thank you very much, Justin. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me here today. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Bear. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.